0: Chapter Sixteen of A Silent Witness by R. Austin Freeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Sixteen. Enter Father Humperdinck. On the day following my and Thorndyke's masterly retreat from Salter's Club, the plain-clothes officer called to make his report. And even before he spoke, I judged from his rather sheepish expression that he had failed, and so it turned out he had waited in the port's lodge he told us until midnight keeping a watch on the watcher who for his part lurked in the street always keeping in sight of the hospital and whiling away the time by gazing into the shop windows the spy had evidently failed to recognise thorndyke for when the latter left the hospital in company with one of the physicians he had given only a passing glance at the open carriage in which the two men sat after the shops had shut the persevering shadower had occupied himself with a sort of dismal sentry go up and down the street disappearing into the darkness and reappearing at regular intervals once or twice the plain-clothes man went out and followed his quarry in his perambulations but not considering it prudent to expose himself too much to view he remained mostly in the lodge it was after one of these sallies that the mischance occurred returning to the lodge he saw the spy pass the gates and disappear up the dark street he looked after the usual interval for him to reappear but the interval passed and there was no reappearance then the officer hurried out in search of his quarry but found only an empty street even the apparently inexhaustible patience of the spy had given out at last and so the quest had ended i cannot say that thorndyke impressed me as being deeply disappointed in fact i thought that he seemed if anything rather relieved at his emissary's failure this was jervis's opinion also and he had no false delicacy about expressing it well thorndyke replied as the fellow thrust himself right under my nose i could hardly do less than make some sort of an attempt to find out who he is but i don't particularly want to know my investigations are proceeding from quite another direction and you see jervis how awkward it might have been to have this person on our hands we could only charge him with loitering with felonious intent and we couldn't prove the intent after all for we can't produce any evidence connecting this man with the three attempted murders he may not be the same man at all and i certainly don't want to go into the witness-box just now and still less do i want my new clerk mr howard put into that position i don't want to take any action until i have the case quite complete and am in a position to make a decisive move the truth is said jervis addressing me confidentially in a stage whisper thorndyke hates the idea of spoiling a really juicy problem by merely arresting the criminal and pumping his friends he looks on such a proceeding much as a master of foxhounds would look on the act of poisoning a fox thorndyke smiled indulgently at his junior there is such a thing said he as failing to poison a fox and only making him too unwell to leave his residence a premature prosecution is apt to fail and then the prisoner has seen all the cards of his adversaries at present i am playing against an unseen adversary but i am hoping that i in my turn am unseen by him and i am pretty certain that he has no idea what cards i hold gad exclaimed jervis then he's much the same position as i am and with this the subject dropped the first week of my residence in thorndyke's chambers was quite uneventful and was mainly occupied in settling down to the new conditions. My letters were sent on by Mrs. Blunt to the hospital, whence they were brought by my principal, as I may now call my quondam teacher, with the exception of Sylvia's, which we had agreed were to be sent to the chambers enclosed in an envelope addressed to Thorndyke. At first I had feared that the confinement would be unendurable, but the reality proved to be much less wearisome than I had anticipated. A horizontal bar rigged up by Poulton in the laboratory gave me the means of abundant exercise of one kind, and in the early mornings, before the gates of the inn were opened, I made it my daily practice to trot round the precincts for an hour at a time, taking the circuit from our chambers, through Crown Office Road, to Fountain Court, and back by way of Pump Court and the Cloisters, to the great benefit of my health and the mild surprise of the porters and laundresses nor was i without occupation in the daytime besides an exhaustively detailed account of all the remarkable experiences that had befallen me of late which i wrote out at thorndyke's request i had a good deal of clerical work of one kind and another and was frequently employed when clients called in exhibiting my skill as a stenographer taking down oral statements or making copies of depositions or other documents which were read over to me by thorndyke or jervis It was the exercise of these latter activities that introduced me to a certain Mr. Marchmont, and through him to some new and rather startling experiences. Mr. Marchmont was a solicitor, and, as I gathered, an old client of Thorndyke's, for when he called one evening, about ten days after my arrival, with a bag full of documents, he made sundry references to former cases, by which I understood that he and Thorndyke had been pretty frequently associated in their professional affairs. "'I've got a lot of papers here,' he said, opening the bag, "'of which I suppose I ought to have had copies made. "'But there hasn't been time, and I am afraid there won't be, "'as I have to return them to-morrow. "'But perhaps if you run your eye over them, "'you will see what it is necessary to remember and make a few notes.' "'I think,' said Thorndyke, "'that my friend, Mr. Howard, will be able to help us "'by taking down the essentials in shorthand,' let me introduce you mr howard is very kindly assisting me for a time by relieving me of some of the extra clerical work mr marcham bowed and as we shook hands looked at me as i thought rather curiously then he extracted the papers from his bag and spreading them out on the table briefly explained their nature there is no need said he to have copies of them all but i thought you had better see them perhaps you will glance through them and see which you think ought to be copied for reference thorndyke ran his eye over the documents and having made one or two brief notes of the contents of some which he then laid aside he collected the remainder and began to read them out to me while i took down the matter verbatim interpolating marchmont's comments and explanations on a separate sheet of paper the reading and the discussion occupied a considerable time and before the business was concluded the treasury clock had struck half-past nine. It's getting late, said Marchmont, folding the papers and putting them back in the bag. I must be going, or you'll wish me at Halifax, if you aren't doing so already. He snapped the fastening of the bag and, grasping the handle, was about to lift it from the table when he appeared to recollect something, for he let go the handle and once more faced my principal. By the way, Thorndyke, said he, there is a matter on which I have wanted to consult you for some time past, but couldn't get my client to agree. It is a curious affair, quite in your line, I think, a case of disappearance, not in the legal sense as creating a presumption of death, but disappearance from ordinary places of resort with a very singular change of habits, so far as I can learn, possibly a case of commencing insanity.' i have been wanting to lay the facts before you but my client who is a jesuit and as suspicious as the devil insisted on trying to ferret out the evidence for himself i wouldn't hear of a consultation with you of course he has failed completely and now i think he's more amenable are you in possession of the facts yourself asked thorndyke no i'm hanged if i am replied marchmont the case is concerned with a certain Mr. Reinhardt, who was a client of my late partner, poor Windhurst. I never had anything to do with him, and it unfortunately happens that our old clerk, Bell—you remember Bell?—who had charge of Mr. Reinhardt's business, left us soon after poor Windhurst's death, so there is nobody in the office who has any personal knowledge of the parties. "'You say it is a case of disappearance?' said Thorndyke. "'Not exactly disappearance, but—well—' It is a most singular case. I can make nothing of it, and neither can my worthy and reverend client, so as I say he is now growing more amenable, and I think I shall be able to persuade him to come round with me, and take your opinion on such facts as we have. Shall you be at home to-morrow evening? Yes, I can make an appointment for to-morrow, after dinner, if you prefer that time. We won't call it an appointment, said Margaret. "'If I can overcome his obstinacy, I will bring him round and take the chance of your being in. But I think he'll come, as he is on his beam-ends, and if he does, I fancy you'll find a little problem exactly to your liking.' With this Mr. Marchman took his departure, leaving Thorndyke and me to discuss the various legal aspects of disappearance and the changes of habit and temperament that usher in an attack of mental alienation i could see that the solicitor's guarded references to an obscure and intricate case had aroused thorndyke's curiosity to no small extent for though he said little on the subject it evidently remained in his mind as i judged by the care with which he planned the disposal of his time of the following day and the little preparations that he made for the reception of his visitors nor was thorndyke the only expectant member of our little establishment jervis also having caught the scent of an interesting case made it his business to keep the evening free, and so it happened that, when eight o'clock struck on the temple bell, it found us gathered round the fire, chatting on indifferent subjects, but all three listening for the expected tread on the stairs. "'It is to be hoped,' said Jervis, "'that our reverend friend won't jib at the last moment. I always expect something good from Marchmont. He doesn't get flummoxed by anything simple or commonplace. I think we've had most of our really thrilling cases through him.' "'and seeing that Jardine has laid in two whole quarto note-blocks "'and put those delightful extra touches to his already alluring get-up—' "'There is no such person here as Jardine,' Thorndyke interrupted. "'I beg his pardon. Mr. Howard, I should have said. "'But listen, there are two persons coming up the stairs. "'You had better take your place at the table, Jar—Howard, "'and look beastly businesslike, or the reverend gentleman will want you chucked out, "'and then you will lose the entertainment.' I hurried across to the table and had just seated myself and taken up a pen when the brass knocker on her inner door rattled out its announcement. Thorndyke strode across and threw the door open and as Mr. Marchmont entered with his client, I looked at the letter inquisitively, but only for a single instant. Then I looked down and tried to efface myself utterly for a Mr. Marchmont client was none other than the cleric with whom I travelled from Folkestone to London the solicitor ushered in his client with an air of but half-concealed triumph and proceeded with exaggerated geniality to do the honours of introduction let me make you known to one another gentlemen said he this is the very reverend father these gentlemen are dr thorndyke dr jervis and mr howard who will act on this occasion as the recording angel to take down in writing the particulars of your very remarkable story Father Humperding bowed stiffly. He was evidently a little disconcerted at finding so large an assembly, and glanced at me in particular with undisguised disfavour, while I, my oiled hair, deformed eyebrows and false beard notwithstanding, perspired with anxiety lest he should recognise me. But however unfavourably the reverend father may have viewed our little conclave, Mr. Marchmont, who had been watching him anxiously, gave him no chance of raising objections, but proceeded to open the matter forthwith i have not brought any digest or précis of the case said he because i know you prefer to hear the facts from the actual parties but i had better give you a brief outline of the matter of our inquiry the case is concerned with a mr vitalis reinhardt who has been closely associated with father humperdinck for very many years past and who has now without notice or explanation Disappeared from his ordinary places of resort, ceased from a communication with his friends, and adopted a mode of life quite alien from and inconsistent with his previous habits. Those are the main facts stated in general terms. And the inquiry to which you referred, said Thorndyke, concerns itself with three questions, replied Marchmont, and he proceeded to check them off on his fingers. First, is vitalis reinhardt alive or dead second if he is alive where is he third having regard to the singular change in his habits is his conduct such as might render it possible to place him under restraint or to prove him unfit to control his own affairs to certify him as insane if i may put it bluntly said thorndyke That question could be decided only on a full knowledge of the nature of the changes in this person's habits, with which, no doubt, you are prepared to furnish us. But what instantly strikes me in your epitome of the proposed inquiry is this. You raise the question whether Mr. Reinhardt is alive or dead, and then you refer to certain changes in his habits. But, since a man must be alive to have any habits at all, the two questions seem to be mutually irreconcilable in relation to the same group of facts. Father Humperdinck nodded approvingly that is just our great difficulty," said he. Some things make me suspect that my friend Reinhardt is dead. Some other things make me feel certain that he is alive. I do not know fitch to sink. I am completely puzzled. Perhaps, said Thorndyke, the best plan would be for Father humperdinck to give us a detailed account of his relations with Mr Reinhardt, and of the latter gentleman's habits, as they are known to him, after which we could discuss any question that suggests themselves, and clear up any points that seem to be obscure. What do you say, Marchmont? it will be a long story marchmont replied doubtfully so much the better rejoined thorndyke it will give us the more matter for consideration i would suggest that father humperdinck tells us the story in his own way and that mr howard takes down the statement then we shall have the principal data and can pursue any issue that seems to invite further investigation to this proposal marchmont agreed a little reluctantly fortifying himself for the ordeal by lighting a cigar and father humperdinck having cast a somewhat disparaging glance at me began his account of his missing friend which i took down verbatim and which i now reproduce shorn of the speaker's picturesque but rather tiresome peculiarities of pronunciation my acquaintance with vitalis reinhardt began more than forty years ago when we were both schoolboys in the jesuit's house at Louvain but I did not see much of him then, as I was preparing for the novitiate while he was on the secular side. In spite of his German name, Vitalis was looked upon as an English boy, for his father had married a rich English lady and was settled in England, and Vitalis, being the only child, had very great expectations. When he left school I lost sight of him for some years, and it was only after the war had broken out between Germany and France that we met again i had then just been ordained and was attached as chaplain to a bavarian regiment he had come out from england as a volunteer to attend the sick and wounded and so we met soon after the battle of sarbrook in the wards of a temporary hospital but our career in the field was not a long one less than a month after sarbrook our little force met a french division and had to retreat leaving a number of men and guns and all the wounded in the hands of the enemy both of us were among the prisoners and vitalis was one of the wounded for just as the retreat began a french bullet struck him in the right hip we were both taken to paris with the rest of the prisoners and there in the hospital for wounded prisoners i was allowed to visit him his wound was a severe one the bullet had entered deeply and lodged behind the bone of the hip so that the repeated efforts of the surgeons to extract it not only failed but caused great pain and made the wound worse From day to day poor Vitalis grew thinner and more yellow, and we could see plainly that if no change occurred, the end must come quite soon. So the doctor said, and so Vitalis himself felt. Then it came to me that, if the skill of man failed us, we should ask for help from above. It happened that I possessed a relic of the blessed St. Vincent de Paul, who was contained in a small gold reliquary, and which I had been permitted by the Father General to keep. I proposed to vitalis that we should apply the relic and make a special appeal to the saint for help and also that he should promise to dedicate some part of his great possessions to the service of god he agreed readily for he had always been a deeply pious man accordingly he made the promises as i had suggested we offered up special prayers to the saint and with the permission of the surgeons i attached the reliquary to the dressings of the wound praying that it should avail to draw out the bullet and did it asked marchmont in a tone which evidently did not escape the observant jesuit for that noble-witted gentleman turned sharply on the lawyer and replied with severe emphasis no sir it did not and why because there was no need the very next day after the reliquary was applied when the dressings were changed a small shred of filthy cloth came out of the wound that was the cause of the trouble Not the clean metal bullet. The saint, you see, sir, knew better than the surgeon. Evidently, said Marchmont, glancing quickly at me, and the expression that I caught in the eye of that elderly heathen suggested that he had actually contemplated a wink and then thought better of it. As soon as the piece of cloth was out of the wound, Father Humperdinck resumed, all the trouble ceased. The fever abated, the wound healed, and very soon Vitalis was able to get about none the worse for his mishap. It was natural that he should be grateful to the saint who had saved his life, for though we look forward to the hereafter, we do not wish to die. Also was it natural that he should feel a devotion to the holy relic which had been the appointed instrument of his recovery. He did, and to gratify him I obtained the father-general's permission to bestow it on him, which gave him great joy, and thenceforth he always carried the reliquary on his person i hope he kept his promise to the saint said marchmont he did faithfully and indeed handsomely no sooner was he recovered of his wound than he proposed to me the founding of a new society of brothers of charity to attend the sick and wounded i consulted with the father general of my society the society of jesus and received a sanction to act as director of the new society of fraternity which was to be affiliated to the Society of Jesus, under the title of The Poor Brothers of St. Joseph of Arimathea. Why not St. Vincent de Paul? asked Marchmont. Because there was already a society named after that saint, and because St. Joseph was a man of eminent charity. But I shall not wear you with a history of our society. It was founded and blessed by His Holiness, the Pope. It prospered and it still prospers to the glory of god and to the benefit and relief of the sick the poor and the suffering at first vitalis paid all the costs and he has been a generous benefactor ever since this is all extremely interesting said marchmont but you will excuse my asking has it any bearing on your friend's disappearance yes sir it has replied father as you shall perceive when i my narrative continue mr marchmont bowed and father humperdinck quite undisturbed by the interruption continued his narrative our first house was established in belgium near brussels and vitalis came to live with us in community he did not regularly join the society or take any vows but he lived with us as one of ourselves and wore the habit of a lay brother when in the house and the dress of one when he went abroad this he has continued to do ever since though bound by no vows he has lived the life of a professed religious by choice occupying an ordinary cell for sleeping and taking his meals at the refectory table but not always from time to time he has taken little holidays to travel about and mix with the outer world sometimes he would come to england to visit his relatives and sometimes he would spend a few weeks in one of the great cities of the continent, looking over the museums and picture galleries. He was greatly interested in art, and liked to frequent the society of painters and sculptors, of whom he knew several, and one in particular, an English painter named Burton, whose acquaintance he made quite recently he seemed very much attached to, for he stayed with him at Bruges for more than a month, When he came back from Bruges, he told me that he proposed going to England to see his relatives and to make certain arrangements with his lawyers for securing a part of his property to our society. I had often urged him to do this, but hitherto he had retained complete control of his property and only paid the expenses of the society as they occurred. He was most generous, but of course this was a bad arrangement because in the event of his death we should have been left without the support that he had promised. It seemed that while he was at Bruges he had discussed this matter with Mr. Burton, who was a Catholic, and that the Englishman also had advised him to make a permanent provision for the society. It seemed that he had decided to divide his property between our community and a cousin of his who lives in England, a project of which I strongly approved. After staying with us for a month or two, he left for England with the purpose of making this arrangement. That was in the middle of last September, and I have not seen him since. Did he complete the arrangements that he had mentioned? Thorndyke asked. No, he did not. He made certain arrangements as to his property, but they were very different ones from those he had proposed. But we shall come to that presently. Let me finish my story. A few days after Vitalis left us, our oldest lay-brother was taken very seriously ill. I wrote to Vitalis, who is deeply attached to brother Bartholomew, telling him of this, And as I did not know where he was staying, I sent the letter to his cousin's house at Hampstead. He replied on the eighteenth of September that he should return immediately. He said that he was then booking his luggage and paying his hotel bill, that he had to see his cousin again, but that he would try to come by the night train, or if he missed that, he would sleep at the Station Hotel and start as early as possible on the following day, the nineteenth. That was the last I ever heard from him. He never came and has never communicated with me since.' "'You have made inquiries, of course,' said Thorndyke. "'Yes. When he did not come, I wrote to his lawyer, Mr. Windhurst, whom I knew slightly. But Mr. Windhurst was dead, and my letter was answered by Mr. Marchmont. From him I learned that Vitalis had called on him on the morning of the 19th, and made certain arrangements of which he, perhaps, will tell you. Mr. Marchmont ascertained that—' On the same day vitalis's luggage was taken from the cloakroom in time to catch the boat train i've made inquiries and find that he arrived at calais and i've succeeded in tracing him to paris but there i've lost him where he is now i'm unable to discover and now before i finish my story you had better hear what mr marchmont has to tell he's been very close with me but you are a lawyer and perhaps know better how to deal with lawyers Thorndyke glanced enquiringly at the solicitor, who, in his turn, looked dubiously at the end of his waning cigar. "'The fact is,' said he, "'I am in a rather difficult position. Mr. Reinhardt has employed me as his solicitor, and I don't quite see my way to discussing his private affairs without his authority.' "'That is a perfectly correct attitude,' said Thorndyke. "'And yet I am going to urge you to tell us what passed at your interview with your client. "'I can't go into particulars at present, but I will ask you to take it from me, "'that there are sound reasons why you should, "'and I will undertake to hold you immune from any blame for having done so.' Marchmont looked sharply and with evidently awakened interest at Thorndyke. "'I think I know what that means,' he said that i will take you at your word having learned by experience what your word is worth but before describing the interview i would better let you know how reinhardt had previously disposed of his property about twelve years ago he got windhurst to draft a will for him by which a life interest in the entire property was vested in his cousin a miss augusta vine with reversion to her niece sylvia vine the only child of his cousin robert this will was duly executed in our office. After that our firm had, until quite recently, no special business to transact for Mr. Reinhardt beyond the management of his investments. The whole of his property, which was all personal, was in our hands to invest, and our relations with him were confined to the transfer of sums of money to his bank when we received instructions from him to effect such transfer. He never called at the office, and latterly there has been no one there who knew him excepting Wingthurst himself and the clerk bell the next development occurred last september on the seventeenth i received a letter from him written at miss vine's house at hampstead saying that he had been discussing his affairs with her and that he should like to call on me and make some slight alterations in the disposal of the property i replied on the eighteenth addressing my letter to him at miss vine's house making an appointment for eleven o'clock on the morning of the nineteenth. He kept the appointment punctually, and we had a short interview, at which he explained the new arrangements which he wished to make. He began by saying that he had found it somewhat inconvenient, living as he did on the continent, to have his account at an English bank. He proposed, therefore, to transfer it to a private bank at Paris, conducted by a certain M. Desire, or rather to open an account there for he did not suggest closing his account at his english bank do you know anything about this monsieur desire asked thorndyke i did not but i have since ascertained that he is a person of credit quite a substantial man in fact and that his business is chiefly that of private banker and agent to the officers of the army Well. Mr. Reinhardt went on to say that he had become rather tired of the monotonous life of a lay brother, which he, after all, was not, and wished for a little freedom and change. Accordingly, he intended to travel for a time, which was his reason for employing Monsieur Desire, and did not propose, necessarily, to keep anyone informed of his whereabouts. He was a rich man, and he had decided to get some advantage from his wealth, which really did not seem to me at all an unreasonable decision. He added that he had no intention of withdrawing his support from the society of the poor brothers he merely intended to dissociate himself personally from it and he suggested that any occasions that might arise for pecuniary assistance should be addressed to him under cover of monsieur finally he desired me to transfer one thousand pounds stock to his new agent seven days from the date of our interview and gave me an authority in writing to that effect in which he instructed me to accept M. Desire's receipt as a valid discharge. "'And you did so?' asked Thorndyke. "'Certainly I did, and I hold M. Desire's receipt for the amount.' "'Did you think it necessary to raise the question of your client's identity, seeing that no one in the office knew him personally?' "'No, I did not. The question did not arise.' there could not possibly be any doubt on the subject he was an old client of the firm and our correspondence had been carried on under cover of his cousin miss vine who had known him all his life you remember that i wrote to him at miss vine's address making the appointment for the interview and what happened next the next development was a letter from father humperdinck asking if i could give him mr reinhardt's address of course i could not but i wrote to monsieur dezeur asking him if he could give it to me dezeur replied that he did not at the moment know where mr reinhardt was but would if desired take charge of any communications and forward them at the first opportunity this statement may or may not have been true but i don't think we shall get any more information out of Desir. he is reinhardt's agent and will act on his instructions if reinhardt has told him not to give anyone his address naturally he won't give it so there the matter ends, so far as I am concerned. Did Vitalis make no suggestion as to altering his will? Father Humperdinck inquired. None whatever. Nothing was said about the will. But, Mr. Marchmont added, after a cogitative pause, we must remember that he has another man of business now. There is no saying what he may have done through M. Desir. Father Humperdinck nodded gloomily. And Thorndyke, addressing the solicitor, asked, "And that is all you have to tell us?" "Yes," and I am not sure that it is not a good deal more than I ought to have told you. It is Father Humperding's turn now. The Jesuit acknowledged the invitation to resume his narrative by a stiff bow, and then proceeded. You can now see, sir, that what I said is perfectly correct. The conduct of my friend Vitalis shows a sudden and unaccountable change. It is quite inconsistent with his habits and his way of thinking, and the change is, as I say, so sudden. One day he is coming with the greatest haste to the bedside of his sick friend, brother Bartholomew, and the next he is making arrangements for a life of selfish pleasure, utterly indifferent as to whether that friend is alive or dead. As a matter of fact, the good brother passed away to his reward the day after vitalis should have arrived without even a message from his old friend but now i return to my story when vitalis failed to appear and i could get no news of him i became very anxious and as it happened that the business of our society called me to england i determined to inquire into the matter circumstances compelled me to travel by way of boulogne and cross to folkestone i say circumstances but i should rather say that i was guided that way by the hand of providence for in the train that brought me from folkestone to london i had a most astonishing experience in the carriage alone with me there travelled a young man a very strange young man indeed he was a very large man or i should say very high and in appearance rather fierce and wild his clothes were good but they were disordered and stained with mud as if he had been drunk at night and had rolled in the gutter. And this, I think, was the case, for, soon after we had started, he began to turn out his pockets on the seat of the carriage, as if to see whether he had lost anything during his debauch. And then it was that I saw a most astonishing thing. Among the objects that this man took from his pockets and laid on the seat was the reliquary that I had given so many years ago to Vitalis. I could not mistake it. Once it had been mine, and I had been accustomed to see it almost daily since. Moreover, the young man at the effrontery to pass it to me that I might examine it, and I found on it the very letters which I myself had caused to be engraved on it. When I asked him where he had obtained it, he told me that he had picked it up at Hampstead, and he professed not to know what it was, but his answers were very evasive, and I did not believe him. "'Nevertheless,' said Mr. Marchmont, there was nothing improbable in his statement. Mr. Reinhardt had been at Hampstead, and might have dropped it. Possibly, but he would have taken measures to recover it. He would not have left England until he had found it. He was a rich man, and he would have offered a large reward for this, his most prized possession. You say, said Thorndyke, that he habitually carried this reliquary on his person can you tell us how he carried or wore it? That, replied Father Humperdinck, was what I was coming to. The reliquary was a small gold object with a ring at each end. It was meant, I suppose, to be worn round the wrist, or perhaps the neck, by means of cord or chain attached to the two rings, or to be inserted into a chaplet of devotional beads. But this was not the way in which Vitalis carried it, he possessed a small and very beautiful crucifix which he set great store by because it was given to him by one of the fathers when he left school and which he used to wear suspended from his neck by a green silk cord now when i gave him the reliquary he caused a goldsmith to link one of its rings to the ring of the crucifix and he fastened the silk cord to the other ring and so he suspended both the reliquary and the crucifix from his neck did he wear them outside his clothing so that they were visible thorndyke asked yes outside his waistcoat so that they were not only visible but very conspicuous when his coat was unbuttoned it was of course very unsuitable to the dress of a lay brother and i spoke to him about it several times but he was sometimes rather self-willed as you may judge by his refusal to settle an endowment on the society and naturally as he was not professed i had no authority over him but i shall return presently to the reliquary now i continue about this young man when i had heard his explanation and decided that he was telling me lies i made a simple pretext to discover his name and place of abode with the same effrontery he gave me his card which i have here and which you will see is stained with mud owing no doubt to those wallowings in the mire of which i have spoken he drew the card from his pocket-book and handed it to thorndyke who read it gravely and pushing it across the table to me said without moving a muscle of his face you had better copy it into your notes mr howard so that we may have the record complete i accordingly copied out my own name and address with due solemnity and a growing enjoyment of the situation and then returned the card to father humperdinck who pocketed it carefully and resumed Having the name and address of this young man, I telegraphed immediately to a private detective bureau in Paris, asking to have sent to me, if possible, a certain M. Foucault, who makes a specialty of following and watching suspected persons. This Foucault is a man of extraordinary talent. His power of disguising himself is beyond belief, and his patience is inexhaustible. Fortunately he was disengaged, and came to me without delay. And, when I had given him the name and address of this young man, Jardine, and described him from my recollection of him, he set a watch on the house, and found that the man was really living there, as he had said, and that he made a daily journey to the hospital of St. Margaret's, where he seemed to have some business, as he usually stayed there until evening. "'St. Margaret's!' exclaimed Marchmont. "'Why, that is your hospital, Thorndyke. Do you happen to know this man, Jardine?' "'There is.' or was a student of that name who qualified some little time ago and who is probably the man father humperdinck is referring to a tall man quite as tall i should say as my friend here mr howard i should say said father humperdinck that the man jardine is taller decidedly taller i watched him as i walked behind him up the platform at charing cross and Monsieur Foucault has shown him to me since. But that matters not. Have you seen the man Jardine lately at the hospital?' "'Not very lately,' Thorndyke replied. "'I saw him there nearly a fortnight ago, but that, I think, was the last time.' "'Ah!' exclaimed Humperdinck. "'Exactly. But I shall continue my story. For some time M. Foucault kept a close watch on this man, but discovered nothing fresh.' He went to the hospital daily. He came home when he stayed indoors the whole evening. But at last there came a new discovery. One morning, M. Foucault saw the man Jardine come out of his house, dressed more carefully than usual. From his house, Foucault followed him to a picture gallery in Leicester Square, and went in after him. And there he saw him meet a female, evidently by previous assignation. And father humperdin continued slapping the table to emphasize the climax of his story from the neck of that female was hanging vitalis reinhardt's crucifix having made this thrilling communication our reverend client leant back to watch its effect on his audience i am afraid he must have been a little disappointed for thorndyke was habitually impassive in his exterior and as for jervis and me we were fully occupied in maintaining a decent and befitting gravity, but Marchmont, the only person present who was not already acquainted with the incident, saved the situation by exclaiming, Very remarkable, very remarkable indeed. It is more than remarkable, said Father Humperdinck. It is highly suspicious. You observe that the reliquary and the crucifix have been linked together now they are separated. "'and since both the rings of the reliquary were unbroken, "'it follows that the ring of the crucifix "'must have been cut through, "'and a new one made by which to suspend it.' "'I don't see anything particularly suspicious in that,' said Marchmont. "'If Jardine found the two articles fixed together, "'and, having failed to discover the owner, "'wished to give the crucifix to his friend, "'it's not unnatural that he should have separated them.' "'I do not believe that he found them,' father humperdinck replied doggedly but i shall continue my story and you will see there is not much more to tell it seems that the man jardine suspected foucault of watching him for presently he left the gallery in company with the female and after being followed for some distance he managed to escape as soon as foucault found that he had lost him he went to jardine's house and waited about the neighbourhood and an hour or two later he had the good fortune to see him coming from Hampstead towards Highgate, in company with another female. He followed them until they entered a narrow passage or lane that leads up the hill, and when they had gone up this some distance he followed, but could not get near enough to hear what they were saying. And now he had a most strange and terrible experience. For some time past he had felt a suspicion that some person, some accomplice of Jardine's perhaps, was following and watching him, and now he had proof of it. At the top of the lane, Jardine stopped to talk to the female, and Foucault crept on tiptoe towards him, and while he was doing so, he heard someone approaching stealthily up the lane, behind him. Suddenly, Jardine began to return down the lane. As it was not convenient for Foucault to meet him there, he also turned and walked back. And then he heard a sound as if someone were climbing the high wooden fence that enclosed the lane then jardine began to run and foucault was compelled also to run but he would have been overtaken if it had not happened that jardine fell down now just as he heard jardine fall he came to a broken place in the fence and it occurred to him to creep through the hole and hide while jardine passed he accordingly began to do so but no sooner had he thrust his head through the hole than some unseen ruffian dealt him a violent blow which rendered him instantly insensible when he recovered his senses he found himself lying in a churchyard which adjoins the lane but jardine and the other ruffian were of course nowhere to be seen and now i come to the last incident that i have to relate the assault took place on a saturday On the Sunday M. Foucault was somewhat indisposed and unable to go out, but early on Monday he resumed his watch on Jardine's house. It was nearly noon when Jardine came out, dressed as if for travelling and carrying a valise. He went first to a house near Piccadilly, and from thence to the hospital in a cab. Foucault followed in another cab, and saw him go into the hospital, and waited for him to come out. But he never came. Foucault waited until midnight but he did not come out. He had vanished. He had probably come out by a back exit and gone home, said Marchmont. Not so, replied Humperdinck. The next day Foucault watched Jardine's house, but he did not come there. Then he made inquiries, but Jardine is not there, and the landlady does not know where he is. Also, the porter at the hospital knows nothing, and is not at all polite. The man Jardine has disappeared as if he had never been. "'That really is rather queer,' said Marchmont. "'It is a pity that you did not give me all these particulars at first. However, that can't be helped now. Is this all that you have to tell us?' "'It is all, unless there is anything that you wish to ask me.' "'I think,' said Thorndyke, "'that it would be well for us to have a description of Mr. Reinhardt, and, as we have to trace him, if possible, a photograph would be exceedingly useful.' I have not a photograph with me, said Father Humperdinck, but I will obtain one and send it to you. Meanwhile I will tell you what my friend Vitalis is like. He is sixty-two years of age, spare, upright, rather tall. His height is a hundred and seventy-three centimetres. Roughly five feet nine, interposed Thorndyke. His hair is nearly white. He is, of course, clean-shaven. He has grey eyes, a straight nose, Not very prominent, and remarkably good teeth for his age, which he shows somewhat when he talks. I think he is a little vain about his teeth, and he well may be, for there are not many men of sixty-two who have not a single false tooth, nor even one that has been stopped by the dentist. As to his clothing, he wears the ordinary dress of a lay brother, which you are probably familiar with, and he nearly always wears gloves, even indoors. Is there any reason for his wearing gloves? thorndyke asked not now the habit began when he had some affliction of the skin which made it necessary for him to keep his hands covered with gloves which contained some ointment or dressing and afterwards for a time to conceal the disagreeable appearance of the skin the habit having been once formed he continued it saying that his hands were more comfortable covered up than when exposed to the air was he dressed in this fashion when he called at your office marchmont asked thorndyke "'Yes, even to the gloves. "'I noticed with some surprise that he did not take them off, "'even when he wrote and signed the note of which I told you.' "'Was he then wearing the reliquary and crucifix, "'as Father Humperdinck has described, on the front of his waistcoat?' "'He may have been, but I didn't notice them, "'as I fancy I should have done if they had been there.' "'And you have nothing more to tell us, Father Humperdinck, "'as to your friend's personal appearance?' no i will send you the photograph and write to you if i think of anything that i have forgotten and now perhaps you can tell me if you think that you will be able to answer those questions that mr marchmont put to you i cannot of course answer them now replied Thorndyke. the facts that you have given us will have to be considered and compared and certain inquiries will have to be made are you staying long in england I shall be here for at least a month and i may as well leave you my address although mr marchmont has it in the course of a month thorndyke said as he took the proffered card i think i may promise you that we shall have settled definitely whether your friend is alive or dead and if we find that he is alive we shall no doubt be able to ascertain his whereabouts that is very satisfactory said father humperdinck i hope you shall be able to make good your promise with this he rose and having shaken hands stiffly with thorndyke bestowed on jervis and me a ceremonious bow and moved towards the door i thought that marchmont looked a little wistful as if he would have liked to stay and have a few words with us alone indeed he lingered for a moment or two after the door was open but then apparently altering his mind he wished us good night and followed his client End of chapter 16